You're listening to The Grind, well-caffeinated conversations with disc golfers who are passionate about improving their games and helping others to do the same. Welcome to episode five of The Grind. I'm Josiah. With me, my good buddy, David. We're going to talk some disc golf. How's it going, guys? This week, we are going to be reviewing the end of a Thunderbird. We are going to have a pro tip from Jeremy Coling, Big Germ, and... We are going to have a debate. It's usually a discussion. I'm going to call this a debate. Should you know your score? Should you check your score in round, in tournament? And I'm looking forward to it. But first, David, as always, got to ask, what are you sipping on and how was your week? This week, we're uh, sipping on some morning Mando blend from the Sugar Creek Coffee Roasters. I think we had some Sugar Creek last week. This week, it's more of a dark roast. Last week, it was kind of more on the lighter end. They have it listed as a dark roast. As far as uh, what I'm seeing, I, it's more of a true uh, medium roast, but uh, their their roasting style is kind of hitting that uh, higher end palate. And typically, when you're in that genre of the craft uh, coffee, your darker roasts end up being a little bit more on the medium side. So it's more approachable for the wide variety of people as opposed to dark roasts can sometimes push people away at times. Yeah, and so could a super light roast. So I think it is... It's a very, like you said, approachable cup for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm enjoying it overall. I'm typically a dark roast. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge dark roast person, uh, so it's not something that I would necessarily grab off the shelf. Um, but it's not something that if I had it brewed up for a friend, if a friend brewed it up for me at their house or over the holidays, it's not necess- It's not something I would be offended by. Um, it's something that I would. I would just enjoy drinking. No, for sure. I think it's pretty similar to what we uh, drank a few weeks back. The the grind from birdie fuel it's it's approachable it's easy to drink it's uh got some good chocolatey and nutty flavors you said you picked up a little bit of citrus I yeah don't, i'm not that good at coffee but i i honestly i was telling josiah that i'm typically not very good at picking up notes once it gets to the medium to darker end of the coffee mostly i'm going to be tasting just that roasted taste which you associate as kind of earthy chocolatey um, sometimes I'll pick up some of those tobacco notes in there, but I, I'm just not, not as good at picking up the notes and, uh, as it gets darker for sure. Yeah. And it, it's a great cup and they do have roasting options on their website. So I'm assuming you, they'd have that in store as well. Um, and the cool thing about the morning Mando is every bag donates $5 to the Charlotte disc golf club. And so it's cool that a roaster is getting in on supporting the scene and five bucks is, uh, no little bit of money. So, um, that's pretty cool to me. That's super rad. I think if, I mean, that's incredible that uh, you, at the end of the day, I think in a community, you should be using what you have to uh, better build the things that you enjoy. I mean, that's a philosophy that my dad kind of built into me is uh, we should be using the things that we have to uh, be putting energy in, whether it is physically, uh, if you have the finances to do it, whatever it might be, uh, to help grow your community. So I think that's super rad. If you want to order some morning mando or any coffee from sugar creek roasters you can visit them at sugarcreekcoffee.com anyway david how was your week dude a lot of disc golf this week yeah for real it's awesome (laughs) i think i mean if we counted last friday as part of the week i played five rounds in four days and then what we just got in a round just before uh, the cast and we also uh, we talked about on the second cup um, our uh, we had a friend's putting league last night, which we had about six or seven buddies out there um, at a time, and it was it was a blast. Um, yeah, for sure. I think my rounds this week, uh, I mean, I was consistently inconsistent. Um, <laughs> my putting this week, I think I talked about last week, my putting felt like it was not that great. I, I went from being very consistent over the past month to feeling like my putting started to fall apart, and... Uh, putting league, I felt pretty good, but on the course this week, I just wasn't consistently cashing putts. And I think part of what I've been dealing with over the past week is a little bit of hip pain. I think I'm, I'm kind of attributing it to all the spike hazards I like to do with my forehand. <laughs> I get laptop <laughs> firebird spike hyzer, anything all. from 180 feet to 280 feet. Doesn't matter the hole. David will find a way. <laughs> Always the answer. But I'm having to limit myself on those spike hyzers and 
Uh, I think I'm noticing it in my putting just a little bit. I I feel it. It's not causing any pain at all, but I, I feel it when I am going to putt. And I mean, maybe psychologically it's impacting that. I think I'm just trying to come up with some sort of excuse for why I'm, I've been terrible putting. <laughs> um, but I think my consistent rounds went from um, sitting around negative seven and negative 10 to I was sitting more around negative five to negative six this week. So definitely taking a few strokes off my game this week or adding a few strokes to my game this week. Well, I don't think your putting was terrible. It just wasn't to your standards. My expectation when I watch David putt is anything within 25 feet is going in. Um, if if he misses at 25 feet or in, I'm kind of like, huh, that was weird. Uh, where I feel like my putt is like a little bit more, I don't know. I think I when I'm on, I'm on. And when I'm not on, I'm not on. So it just was a little bit below your standard. And you're going to pick it back up. Uh, for sure. I, I'm excited to hopefully have this hip pain behind me and uh, figure this back out. Yeah. I sent David some disc golf strong uh, videos. So I I have occasionally had hip pain as well. I think it's just trying too hard or something. But Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's part of it. I think um, with changing up my motions with my backhand, I fixed some things and I think I've created other problems. That's hey, you're finally using a lower <laughs> body apparently. Yeah. I feel like that's typical with disc golf. You fix one problem and you find out there's another problem. Yeah, that was last or, week. For us, for <laughs> you sure. create another problem. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. I think I'm having to figure out, okay, where's that pain coming from? Yeah, I I feel the same way in terms of inconsistency this week. I think between all the rounds we played, I think I was between five down and 11 down, depending on the round. I was eight down today, which I'm pretty happy with. I think that I've had good drives and bad drives, good putts and bad putts. It's not like everything's falling apart or everything's not doing that great. It's just need to tighten it up a little bit. But the weather, weather's been great. We got to do putting league with friends. So I feel like, yeah, maybe there's some little corrections to make technically or mentally or whatever. But it's just so nice to get to play a lot of disc golf. And I also played our little short op- wide open putter course on Monday, I think it was. And that was good for me because it's all like shots that you should birdie every single one. I've gone nine down on the nine holes before and I went out there to just work on my upshots like we talked about last week. And I feel like it really revealed to me that I've been focusing so much on like drives that include a walk up that those 120 to 200 foot upshots, I I should convert them every time on uh, that course. And I wasn't, I don't remember what I ended up at, but uh, I played basically t- just two discs uh twice so i got I got full 18 in in like 20 minutes because that is uh it's a really short course but it just reminded me hey you need to work on the basics too like yeah you're trying to hit this really nice flip up hyzer backhand to go 330 or whatever and then make a 20 footer or 50 footer or whatever um, and it just reminded me sometimes the little things like making your 15 footers uh, like we talked about in the second cup and uh, hitting those upshots that are wide open are probably the difference between you know two or three strokes in a tournament that could be um, when, once you add a round or two to that it's pretty significant. Yeah, were you working on both your uh, forehand and backhand upshots? At yeah, I just tried to like pick what I thought was the best shot for the hole, um, but most of them it was probably half and half really, and neither one of them was great and neither one of them was bad. I had some really good like consistent where I'd throw both discs and they were you know, right inside, you know, 15 feet or something. And then I'd have some where I was like, I shouldn't be 40 feet away on a 150 foot hole. That does not make any sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that I love the most about Westlake is being able to throw both the forehand and backhand on every hole. There's definitely a line for both of them. I mean, most of them are fairly open shots. Um, you're going around a couple of trees, but it's just perfect to be able to work on those. I mean, essentially up shots on every hole. It's a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And so I was glad to get to do that. I want, probably need to do that a little bit more often. I think it'd be fun to, fun to get friends out again and do some kind of something there to put a little pressure on it. Glow rounds? Yeah, glow rounds. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get warm at night soon. Yeah, I, I'd say here in March, I, I think we're probably going to be pushing April before it gets warm enough and uh, I guess dark enough or... Uh, warm yeah. enough. Yeah, warm enough. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, glow rounds are fun. Now we should do that for sure. Cool. You want to get into the pro tip? Yeah, for sure. We have Big Jeremy himself. I reached out to him and I said, hey, Jeremy, Jerm, Mr. Coling, I don't know what to call you, but 
what's one thing that you wish you knew when you were first building your game? And he said, that's a good question. Thanks, Jeremy. I agree. That's a great question. He said, I think controlling my body and arm speed isn't something that I really focused on until well into my pro career. I used to think that everything had to be fast in order to get much of the desired big distance. Now I understand that much better that proper form and timing is everything. Reminding myself to go 70 to 75% usually allows me to achieve up to 90 to 95% of max distance potential. And it's also much easier on my body. And I feel like we've been talking about this around this a little bit in the previous episodes of either the main podcast or the second cup. But I wanted to uh, ask you, David, what do you think about this pro tip? This just sounds like something Jeremy Colling would go to. When I think of Col- Jeremy Colling, I think of, I mean, he's uh, probably one of the most humble guys on the course and just fun loving. And I think he's so, the way that he um, communicates this is so reflective on his game. And I think the natural tendency in the game is to go out and you want to be one of the big guns. You're going out there and just exploding on every drive. And it seems like that's how you get your distance. But uh, uh, yeah, I think for me, I wish I knew this earlier on because uh, this is something that I probably just started learning, at least committing more to learning. It was something I pushed a little bit of aside because I had heard the theories, I guess, earlier on, uh, whether it's from Josiah talking to me or uh, uh, watching YouTube videos, whatever it might be. But it didn't really sink in until I talked on the episode one about going and playing in Austin, Texas. But uh, learning how to throw with more finesse and not having to... Um, just go up ripping on every disc. And like for me with forehand, I'm just ripping on an overstable disc every time because I don't want to turn it over. And man, by the end of the round, I'm I'm exhausted. I'm so exhausted. And now I think over the past, it's been about a month since we got back from Austin and that really changed up my approach and just mental approach to my forehand. I think we talked about, I definitely am feeling a lot smoother with it. I'm just not, I'm not going up and just ripping on my disc every time. But man, my arm never feels tired anymore. And I'm, I think maybe I've given up like 10 to 15 feet, maybe. Maybe. And hands down, any day, <laughs> I would give up 10 to 15 feet to um, have, be able to have the stamina to be able to throw. But we just played five rounds in four days uh, to be able to do that. Uh, hands down, I think that, that I would take that any day. Yeah, I I think about this for the backhand primarily for me, um, the forehand as well. But I think I'm like naturally a finesse forehand player. I use a lot of wrist and a lot of spin. Um, but the backhand for me is one that you know everybody you know probably has heard uh, somebody say, "Hey, you know, you need to slow it down a little bit." And sometimes you think you're moving slowly, but you're really not. And I think that. Uh, you know, we were talking about a friend uh, that David was helping out with his backhand form a little bit, and he was having that front foot point forward. And I think what would happen for me, or what still occasionally happens for me, is that last stride gets long because I've built up a little bit too much speed in my X step without having the um, related coordination. And so, for my backhand, you know, just generally, I think that lately I've been throwing. I've had these throws where I think I'm going to throw like a fairway driver in the 310, 320 range, and it goes like 350. And it's like a 75 to 80% power throw. And I'm, I'm, this has happened before, even before I was trying to slow down, where I was trying to power, I was trying to power down. I was trying to think about hole uh, nine at Watson at the top position where you threw your Firebird way too long before. Yeah. Like we have, you. I think I've had this occasional thing where I've hit this really great drive. All of a sudden, I went 50 feet further than I expected or 30 feet further than I expected and I wasn't trying that hard. I think it's because my timing was actually good for once instead of being all out of order because I was running down the tee pad or whatever. So for me, I think about it a lot for my backhand. I feel like I'm just getting to the point where I'm really slowing down that run up, keeping my f- footsteps or my steps, my X steps short. And I'm seeing some good results. And I had one of the most, I don't, I think it was John and I were playing, but somebody came up to me as we were uh, at just had teed off and he was like, you started so slow and then you just exploded through the shot. And I was like, I might be actually finally doing it. I might actually be finally <laughs> not running it. down the tee pad. Uh, that's what I mean. I think about with my backhand, with slowing things down with timing, 
the one time that I've hit 375 with my T-Bird 3, and I think that's probably the furthest back end I've ever thrown. Yeah, I think about this throw specifically for this subject. Um, I completely slowed myself down and was very intentional about uh, methodically going through my... I was at the time focusing on where I was landing and then also just having that reach out. I think we talked about that in our episode too. But uh, having to reach out as opposed to reach back. And I was just so focused on that that I was just... Everything seemed so simple for that throw. And uh, I think because I wasn't so focused on getting that big distance, I was just focused on that one mechanical change um, that for some reason all the timing clicked. And I just... I somehow... I threw a lot cleaner and got more distance. Yeah, it was 375 with a fairway driver and it was flat to hyzer. It wasn't like you got a big turnover or anything. It was yeah. just clean, smooth. It, You looked effortless. And I, this, I, we said in the previous podcast, but I was like, oh, crap. That's not good. <laughs> I mean, it's good for him. It's good for him. There was one day where I started feeling like my back end was starting to click and I had that effortless feel. And I texted Josiah too. I was like, dude, I'm starting to feel like this is effortless for me, which is, I mean, that's essentially where you want to be to where you're not having to um, just explode at like, like Coling was saying at a hundred percent, but it feels just effortless. Like it is 70, 80%, but really it is. I mean that in, in essence, it's getting you that hundred percent. That's where you want to be. And uh, I mean, that's something that, that I'm continually working towards. And I think I've, I've gotten back to trying, especially with my back end, I've gotten back to trying to get more distance by exploding a little more. Um, and I think the, ex- the focus on exploding has messed up my timing. Yeah, I think I'm on that seesaw as well. I do think that because the backhand is a little bit more of my bread and butter, I don't. I feel like I feel like there's maybe a little bit less variance than what you're seeing, but I do. I do feel that for sure. One thing I've thought about. I want. Let me make one two statements. One is slowing things down doesn't have to be permanent. I think that getting your timing right and then adding some speed and then like we're kind of doing, hey, you add some speed, then you might need to slow down a little bit, get the timing cleaned up. You know, I think the the key is that your your timing is is um, is not perfected, but it's improved. It's getting better. Because um, I think that is, you know, ha- half the throw is, is timing. And uh, next week, I think it's going to be next week, we got our buddy Ryan Wilking who's going to join us and he's going to tell us how to throw 500 feet. And so I'll ask him, hey, like, how much does like athleticism play into this? Cause he can throw far and how much of it is just timing and form. My hope is he'll tell us it's not too late, but we'll, we'll ask him. Um, the other thing I was going to say is I think just from my experience in disc golf in general, whether that's forehand, backhand putts, smooth acceleration and not having motions that take away from that is more important than, uh, than speed. It, it results in speed, but David and I were talking about, you know, making longer putts and I was showing him that when I, to make longer putts for me and, and get that, that acceleration and that, um, distance, I actually have to shorten my stroke a little bit to get that smooth pop. And I think that's kind of the case with the backhand as well for me. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting for me to process that with putting, actually releasing a little bit earlier to get that smooth snap. Cause you think the longer that you're holding onto it and exploding through it at the end, you're going to get that distance but that's definitely not the case. And it, it kind of translates over a little bit. Yeah. And I think if you go back to David trying to figure out backhand and, and reaching way, 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 way back, um, if you watch our buddy Ryan Wilking and a lot of the pros throw, some of them don't have a very long reach back. And it, I think it really is that they bring that disc into the power pocket and then they explode from there. And it is, it's all about building up that acceleration and, you know, whatever you need to do to do that. And, um, whatever you can remove from your throw that isn't helping that, I think simplifying is ideal. And I appreciate um, Coling sending us this tip because I think it's just reinforcing for me, yes, yeah, slow down. And yeah, you do want to explode at the end, but but don't try that too early in your throw. Um, and don't try so hard to make things happen. Let your body throw the disc. Don't Don't try to force the throw. Yeah, I think not only that slowing down is going to help you uh, slow down mechanically to figure out that that timing in order to get, actually get the distance that you're looking for, but also if we're talking about tournament play, um, I think often about um, just having the stamina to get through if it's three rounds, four rounds, whatever you're playing in a tournament. 
I mean, if you're going up and throwing 100% every single throw and just exploding on everything, um, by the end of each round, especially by the time you're on round three, um, you're going to be pretty exhausted. And when you're exhausted, you make mistakes. One of the things that I tend to make a mistake, especially if I'm throwing a backhand, is I'll start uh, one of my early uh, mistakes with my backhand was having my toe pointed slightly forward, like Josiah mentioned earlier. And that's a mistake that I'll go back to. And it, it forces me to hyzer out my disc. And then I throw it like 200 feet and it's just this height. And that's, it's, I, it's I do that when that I'm bad. tired. Yeah. It's not that bad. <laughs> but uh, I do that when I start getting tired. And I think uh, if you can if you can slow yourself down to not only, there's so many variables about slowing yourself down that it improves your game all around. Yeah. I I remember the first tournament I played, which we talked about in episode two, but just my arm being so dead by round three that I like my form fell apart and then like my trust in my throws and even in my putts after a while started to fall apart. And so I do think that saving your arm and you, maybe you are, your form is already good enough that you can throw really hard and not, you know, have any consequences after two or three rounds in two days. But for me, if I try to throw as hard as I can, my shoulder is going to be pretty worn out. Typically for me is my shoulder is going to be pretty worn out and I'm going to start having some weird effects on my form. And that just erodes confidence, especially when you're playing a long, long holes, you'll a lot of times you just want to have that disc go far. And uh, for me, I was playing with people who bombed. And so I just try too hard. And I think if, you know, for in the future, I'm going to try to make this adjustment, but it's like, Hey, if I throw 50 feet shorter, but I, throw accurately then that's probably worth it to me and honestly you probably aren't going to throw 50 feet shorter because if you have good form and you're throwing a little less hard and you, but your timing's good you're probably going to be in that like uh jeremy was saying that 90 to 95 percent um distance potential anyway yeah for sure i think it's absolutely worth it in the end all right david we normally would call this the discussion but i think we need to have a debate uh, maybe not a debate but I think you and I are very different in this and I want to get your thoughts on should you know, should you check your score? So that would be in round, maybe you're chasing your personal record, or you're trying to beat your buddies or in a tournament, you, you want to know what the field's doing. So tell me, what do you think? And then what's build a case for it. <laughs> yeah, just, I think you and I both probably have a bit different philosophies because uh, we've talked a little bit about it in the past. I typically like to know my score and what's going on. I like to know the field. Uh, I like to know what I'm chasing. I kind of have an idea going into the round, just I and I usually have a conversation about what kind of scores it's going to take in order to uh, be at the top. Um, and so I have a general idea, but I definitely keep track of my score. Um, I think it's it's something mentally for me to keep up with. Um, it doesn't really distract me. I mean, I've caddied for Josiah before, and I know he doesn't really like to know the score. Um, and everything with, try to help me. <laughs> every, everything within me is trying to figure out how to kind of communicate with Josiah to let him know where he's at, but not actually tell him. So I guess for me, it gives me something that I'm working towards. I typically have one or two guys that I not necessarily idolize. There's There's definitely one guy in particular that... I would like to beat, and I have beat him in rounds before, but I've never beat him in a tournament. And he is, I think partly the reason why I want to beat him is because he's so crazy consistent with his forehand. He is, and that's something that I take a lot of pride in for myself. And I think seeing how ridiculous he is, and he can throw a forehand 420 feet. My average forehand is more like 380, 385 on, uh, for uh, my absolute like max power. And uh, it, so it's kind of frustrating for me. And I know that I can beat him in a tournament. And so I think having people that I want to beat um, gives me that drive of competitiveness to be working towards something. You uh, are very goal-oriented. Definitely. If it's... If it's uh, just around by yourself or with friends, you're going to be like, hey, I want to beat these people or I want personal record. Yep. Tournament, you're going to pick two or three people that you have to beat to use that as fuel. For sure. And I think even in a practice round, when I'm going into the practice round to practice, I don't. I typically don't play as well because I'm not really caring. There was a period when we were playing with friends that I, 
I had the record with our friends for the longest time, and Josiah finally beat me. I but, reawakened the monster. But uh, I had got to the point to where I was kind of lackadaisically playing. I wasn't intentional about my putting. I wasn't every, intentional every about putt, much. Every putt, every <laughs> putt, 15 feet, 20 feet, 25 feet, 30 feet, didn't matter, was hitting the front of the rim. Yeah, but uh, there's definitely the competitive aspect of it, I think, for me. And so I think it's not necessarily for everybody. I think some people are competitive in different ways. That's something I think growing up, I, I have a twin brother we've talked about on the podcast before. Um, him and I are both like kind of playfully competitive and we like to beat each other and uh, kind of harass each other about it in a fun way. And I think that's part of where I guess that drive comes from is it's just, it's fun to have that. I, I typically find like that one person every tournament that I really want to make sure that I'm going to beat. And I typically talk about <laughs> that person with Josiah. It's fun for me to have something to work towards, I guess. And I like knowing where I'm at in the pack, feeling like I'm I'm chasing, I'm fighting something down. And you you really feel like that if it doesn't affect you negatively or distract you or make you push um, or be too aggressive, it, you really do feel like, no, I'm going to play my best when I know the landscape and I know what I need to do to win. For sure. And I, I mean... That I, we've talked before. I've had one tournament that I played absolutely terrible, and in that tournament, I, I mean, I went into the round being really competitive, um, but I fell apart early, and I think that's the one tournament that I that second round I really didn't have a goal in mind. I just it's like I'm just going to go through the motions here because I was towards the bottom and didn't have a chance. I'm just going to have fun. I had one guy on my card that I love playing with, and I just had a lot of fun playing around with him. So, yeah. And and I, it's just so interesting because I don't play well, uh, or maybe I should put it this way: I play much better when I don't focus on my score, anybody else's score, even how I'm doing, if I'm doing well or poorly. When I went 14 down, and uh, which is once again beat David's record, just you know, you know, just point it out there. But uh, <laughs> oh, it's it's, gonna, local it's not going to be long. Yeah, I know. I'm going to go 15 now before too long. You're right, David. <laughs> but uh, I d- knew I was doing well and knew I was re- getting close to a personal record, but didn't know my score. I think in general, I'm a process-oriented person. I really want to think about nothing else but the current shot and then think about nothing else again until the next shot. And when I do that and I am kind of in between, really not in the competition, but just enjoying being outside or being with friends or whatever or playing in the tournament... I play, I can play really well. I mean, I can be a very good disc golfer. And when I am really focused on, hey, I need to make this score, I need to do this thing, I think that distracts me from actually executing my shots. Um, and it puts more pressure than is necessary on a putt or whatever. David uh, was catting for me the second round of the Colorado States. And I was playing well up into a certain point that made some mistakes. And David wanted to encourage me. He was like, hey, man, you're still in it. You still have a chance. Because the leader at that point had just double bogeyed, I think, two holes in the past three holes. And so I just, I wanted to figure out some way to let Josiah know that he was still in and, it. And I honestly don't think he messed me up too much. But I do think that for me, I am one of those people that I would have been just as good off or maybe even better off having no idea. You said that, and then um, you know a guy in our card said, "Hey, we're all tied for third uh, on like the next." Uh, well, I guess it was a few holes later after you had had to uh, take I off. I didn't notice him say that. No, it was after you had to take off for your round. Uh, okay. And I think that honestly just mess messes me up, and I want to get past that. Like I want to be able to know the score, know how I'm doing, know the landscape. I don't want to know it, but if I do know it, I don't want to be messed up by it. But I play best when I'm just in that kind of flow state, focused on my shot, focused on the putt, focused on the next drive, focused on the upshot, focused on the putt, and then I let everything go in between. I honestly think that there are certain times where when I watch pro tournaments, like Paul McBeth, he always knows the score. And I do feel like you, your, your game is more Nate Sexton, but your competitiveness, I feel like, is more Paul McBeth. <laughs> And then the skills level maybe a little lower than those two. <laughs> maybe just, just, just a little bit. But I, I do wonder sometimes when Macbeth is pushing from behind, sometimes he takes it. But I do wonder, too, if he played conservatively, if people would just fall apart 
knowing he was back there and he would be able to take some wins or if the fact that he is being so aggressive is the reason that people could fall apart or the reason that he'd take the wins. And I don't know the the answer to that and I'm not Paul and I don't, you know, he and I only talk once a week or two, you know, so it's hard to get all the questions in, yeah. but, but uh, I do wonder about that. Yeah. I, I remember as a kid, my dad would, uh, one of the things that my dad would say is that uh, he would almost want to try to get me angry be, uh, when we were playing baseball or something because I always played more with the fire on my shoulder when I was angry or upset about something because I wanted to prove something. I think ultimately I want to prove that I can do something. I want to prove that I can. And at the end of the day, I think you have to, for me, it's believing that you can do it. Because if you don't believe that you can do it, I think we mentioned this in one of the podcasts, but if you don't believe that you can do it, then you're never going to actually give yourself a chance. And I think having that goal in mind for me and that feeling of like, I'm chasing this person down. I am chasing this person down. It's, it's a fun feeling. I think if I was in the lead, it would be a little bit different. I but think you if, were, you knew the score when you won Palisade your first tournament. After the first round, but I also knew that it was after the first round. I knew nobody was going to catch you. I didn't, I didn't, I just needed to not make a mistake. Sure. sure. Um, and I didn't, I, I had enough lead that I didn't really have to think about it too much. But I think if I was winning by one or two strokes and the person on my card was putting some pressure on me, that might be a little bit of a different game. I haven't seen myself in that scenario. Uh, so it would be interesting, I, I guess, to see if that would change my dyna- dynamic of play. Yeah, I think my first tournament, if I didn't know I was leading, I think I would have been better off. Yeah. And that's just... And, and maybe there's some growth in me that needs to happen from a competitive perspective. But I also think knowing yourself and knowing you know how you're wired and what works best for you and then just leaning into that makes sense to me and for me i think make it makes sense you know most tournaments now and this could be true in your round as well going for the personal record or whatever uh you can check the live score and it's probably worth it that last hole or that last if you're deciding between whether you're going to run a putt or not if you can quickly check the score and say hey if i just lay this up i'm gonna get my personal record and it's a 60 footer with, you know, or, Hey, if I'm going to, if I make this putt, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be tied for second instead of, you know, t- in third or whatever those things are. I think that's worth it to me because there's some strategic advantage of knowing the score. But up until then, I think if you just play your game and you play, my focus is always the course. Like I try not to focus on the competition. David and I have a friendly competition, but I think that I score much better when we're not actually playing it in round together. That's because I cheat and I secretly, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, I, and, and I, I always knew it. <laughs> yeah. If I play a solo round, I'll probably score a stroke or two better than with friends. And then a tournament will usually be a stroke or two worse than that. So I want to grow in it, but I also just realized that for me, I really want to just be relaxed and focus on the shot and be really process oriented. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. At the end of the day, it comes down to personality and knowing yourself and kind of figuring out what works best for you. I think, it, I mean, especially early on with tournaments, uh, why not try different approaches and see what works best? Yeah, and if you've got an athletic background, you probably have some idea. Um, I'm always, you know, it's been fun with this podcast because I've realized that like your baseball coaching that you had has actually been really helpful for your disc golf and how you apply that. Um, and I don't think I had as good of coaching when I played basketball or football, partially because we were terrible. The coaches were just tired of it. But I think that it's cool to see like, hey, some of the things that you and I both agree on, you came to early on because of baseball coaching. And I've come to through doing some reading and really like trying to figure it out on the disc golf course. Yeah, for sure. I think the thing I take away most from baseball is mechanics and psychology. At the end of the day, if you focus on mechan- mechanics and human psychology, um, you'll find success. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Well, I didn't convince you to not know your score, but maybe I can convince you not to tell me my score when you're caddying for me. <laughs> it's definitely hard, but I know and respect that. So <laughs> I hold it in. All right, you want to do a disc review? Let's do it. All right, it's time for the What Was That disc review. We've got the end of a Thunderbird. It's a nine speed, five glide, zero turn, and two fade control driver from Innova. I've had bagged these before. I may bag them now or may decide to bag them. David, I know you've messed with them. What do you think about the Thunderbird? Let's see. I've thrown Champion Thunderbird and uh, 
the new actually last season's coaling uh, uh, glow Thunderbirds. They're pretty sick. I love the print job on them. Um, shout out to you, Jeremy Coling. I don't think they're glow. I think they're swirly star. I thought they're glow. Are they not? I think they're swirly star, man. I've never actually checked it. You've never tried in the dark anyway. (laughs) No, I think they're that really sweet swirly star plastic. I think it's a similar feel to the Innova Color Glow. Okay. But I think it doesn't actually glow or not that much. All right. Well, correct. Thanks thanks for correcting me. You throw it a lot, so I figured you'd know. I do. I throw it a lot. Um, Let's see. I've thrown them both. Um, The Champion uh, Thunderbird for me is a little bit more on the flippy side now. When you say flippy side, (laughs) can you explain the flight? On the forehand or backhand? That's on the forehand. Okay, so what's the, what's the flight of the champion on the forehand? The flight of the champion on the forehand is I'm going to get pretty straight flight with uh, it's with my more flippy one. I'm going to get a little bit of a turn at the beginning with a predictable fade at the end. With the swirly star <laughs> coaling uh, Thunderbird, I don't get as much of a turn. Uh, it's going to hold straight and then have that predictable fade at the end. It's more of a it's more of a newer disc, and I think it's more of a, true to its flight pattern. So I think is it nine five zero two? Yep, nine five zero two. Yeah, and I love it. It's uh, as far as a forehand disc, it's kind of a nice. I would say it's a nice beginner forehand disc because before it, you step up to the. David's favorite flat top firebird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and before you step up to the Wraith as well. But it has enough of a predictable fade to it that you can rip on it a little bit. And it's going to it's gonna finish nicely for you without turning over too much on the forehand. I messed around with it a bit backhand. I haven't found a lot of consistency with it backhand. It throws similar to, uh, for me, backhand, it throws similar to a firebird. And I think that's primarily because I don't have that much speed with my firebird but uh with my flippy thunderbird i'm 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 able to get a little bit more of a distance with it and uh i think because it's more beat in but i've had trouble throwing it uh early on with the uh, me learning the back end i've i've had an easier time throwing the wraith back end believe it or not yeah it's something that i think is a great forehand disc and i i know a lot of people use it for backhand for some reason, for me, it's one that I haven't figured out great with the backhand. I think since you throw the flat top Firebird as your typical forehand disc, it ends up being a neutral disc for your forehand. Yeah. And then on the backhand, is it just that it's more stable than your T-Bird 3? Or why do you end up throwing the, the Thunderbird almost exclusively forehand? It's interesting because it's definitely more stable for me than the T-Bird 3. The, the weird thing to me is that with my release, I'm getting a similar... And this is more so talking about with uh, the Coaling Thunderbird, the newer one that's not flippy. I'm getting about the same distance that I do with my uh, Firebird, and given I guess it is a more of a beat-in Firebird, so that makes sense um, that they would be fairly comparable. But I think I, I like to go to the Firebird just because I know that I'm going to have a, a lot harder finish, more of a predictable finish to it. So you go pretty much straight from your T-Bird 3 to your Firebird, if you have for your backhand shots. Yep, for my backhand shots. I just can't I can't get the distance with the Thunderbird for some reason. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, I feel like it, it lines up with this flight numbers well. Um the hand feel is good to me. That nine speed rim still feels pretty comfortable. It doesn't feel too big for my hands. Uh, I think that it's really reliable. I think that that's probably the thing I'd say most about the Thunderbird. I think that's why the pros really like it is it's very reliable. If you have it in a premium plastic that's not just totally destroyed, it's going to go straight for a while, and then it's going to have, a, would say, a fairly hard fade. Uh, I feel like it, it doesn't totally just dump out, but it doesn't, it doesn't have that pushing, gliding fade for me. It has like a pretty strong, consistent fade. Depending on the plastic and the wear, that may change over time. I used to bag them. I maybe will bag them again. We'll we'll get to it on a review. And I actually I use them primarily for headwind backhand discs and big hyzers, uh, anything where I wanted to have something I could just mash on flat and know that it'd be reliable and consistent. I think that I really liked the less premium plastics. So I used to bag like a metal flake, a G Star, and then a Pro. And I like the metal flake, especially in the wind and placement shots is you know really reliable and um, accurate. I'm kind of sad I sold them. 
Uh, and then the G star was like, eh, it's pretty straight with some consistent finish. I didn't get quite as much distance as I expected. And then the pro Thunderbird is what I love the most. And that's probably because I like to throw from a little bit of hyzer. So uh, a fairly stable to overstable disc from a hyzer doesn't have a ton of distance potential. And so the pro Thunderbird, it has just a little bit of flip up when new and then it just goes straight and then it has a little con consistent fade. And then when you beat it in a little bit, you can get this beautiful like flip up to flat from hyzer and then just cruise forever lots of glide and i think that's mostly an arm speed thing and and a release angle thing if you tended to have a little bit more arm speed or your natural release is a little bit anhyzer then you may prefer the premium plastics but for me i really like that pro thunderbird for the day-to-day -day control driver shots you know getting that 350 distance and then i liked the premium for more of that windy day control disc cool. are you hitting about 350 with your thunderbird no not not with the premium plastics with okay. the, with the base plastic like a pro or maybe with a g-star i'll hit around 350 but not not with a premium plastic i i think it, it does and i think this is kind of partially i've never broken one in long enough to know what a really broken in premium plastic thunderbird does i haven't thrown yours but i'd be curious but typically i that fade just it starts a little too early for me to get that distance. You know, when I throw from a little bit of hyzer, maybe I can get it to pop up a little bit, or if I throw flat, that fade comes in, and for me, I think it's an arm speed thing. It comes in just a little early. Yeah, because I'm only hitting about uh, 310 to 315 with it backhand, and I'm with my T-Bird 3, I'm hitting 340 to 350, and so it's one that I just don't necessarily think about backhand. Yeah, and I think the T-Bird 3, you know, they both are 0-2, like 0 turn, 2 fade, but I think the T-Bird 3, because it's a little bit slower, and I think maybe because it is a little less stable, even though they have the, both the same flight numbers, I think about a Thunderbird is a little bit more stable. I think you can push it out a little further before that fade comes in. For a big arm, they might be able to get the Thunderbird further. Actually, I'd expect that they would be able to. Partially probably because they can mash on it harder without having to worry about it turning over. Not that the T-Bird 3 is flippy at all, but I'm just imagining if you could throw really far. I mean, we throw a 350, 375 backhand, and I don't get any turn out of a premium plastic Thunderbird. So I would get a little bit out of a T-Bird 3 if it had been worked in. Not much, but just a tiny bit of flip up. For sure. We talked a bit about the plastics. I borrowed some discs from one of our listeners, Justin. So thank you for letting me borrow a few Thunderbirds for the review. Um, a Pro, a Star, you, you throw beat-in champ and a coaling. And a coaling, yeah. um, I threw Halo, which I really liked. That's probably the favorite of what I threw. And we're going to be giving one away. We've got a Jeremy Coaling Swirly Star Thunderbird and a Halo Star Thunderbird that we'll be giving away. There'll be details on our Instagram page for the podcast post for this episode. And I actually thought the Halo, most my Halo Wraith is stupid overstable when you first get it. And that Halo Thunderbird had a little bit more glide than the um, than the Champ does, and that fade came in a little later. And I think that would beat into to a really nice long control driver disc once it was beat in a bit. Yeah, I'd be actually curious to mess with the Halo Thunderbird for a little bit, especially you know, what you're talking about a beat in one as far as being able to get some solid distance with it and have also have that predictable fade at the end. Yeah, our giveaway maybe have a few more throws on it before it gets to you, but it'll still, David will do a little bit of work on it so it's in that nice little bit straighter flight when you get it, but we won't ink it and we won't lose it probably. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I think that, you know, when I first started throwing at elevation and I started really getting into disc golf again a few years ago, I had been throwing flippier discs or like neutralish discs, but then I was like, "Hey, what do the pros throw?" And I, you know, I had bagged a lot of Innova before, so I, like I said in the other podcast, I got a fresh Champion T Bird and a fresh Champion Thunderbird and threw them, and I thought I'd hyzer flip them like the pros do, and they'd bomb. <laughs> it was like throwing a boat anchor or something. It was so bad, and I and I just would say in general that I think. The Thunderbird does have a fairly high power requirement. I think that's why it makes much more sense for your forehand than backhand. For sure. And so I don't think it's a very beginner-friendly or beginner-approachable disc. Maybe maybe as that, hey, you threw the T-Bird 3 and you really want a headwind disc or something really stable, then maybe the Thunderbird before a Firebird. But for me, it's just not, it's not that approachable. 
for sure. I, I totally agree. I actually got the Thunderbird to replace a T-Bird 3 when I lost the T-Bird 3 because at the time our local disc golf store did not have T-Bird 3s. And I quickly found out the T-Bird 3 is kind of the disc I learned backhand on. I quickly found out that it does not throw like the T-Bird 3 as much as, I guess it, I needed a much higher arm speed to get it to do what the T-Bird 3 was doing. And so that's when I started switching to messing with it forehand. And so I'd say, and that was fairly early on in my game, so I'd absolutely agree that this is a great uh, beginner forehand disc. I think that's definitely Yeah, that's that a good I thought. Recommend. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, the forehand, like we talked about last week, generates a little bit more torque naturally. And so if you're turning over your more neutral or understable discs, and especially if you release a flat shot or a slight Anheuser shot as your natural forehand release, I do think that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I also think that if you get a pro Thunderbird, which they're a little hard to find, or maybe even a DX, that base plastic to complement your premium, then it, I think it would be much more approachable on the backhand side or the beginner side because that pro beats into this really nice, like a little bit of flip up, far throwing disc. I think G-Star probably be the same. I never worked one in long enough to find out. The pro was just so nice. And then I think if you have that that premium, then that can be kind of your meat hook early on and then maybe your you know, control disc after that. And maybe once you beat it up really far, which I don't think either, either of us have gotten to totally, then maybe that does get straight enough to maybe replace that uh, base plastic one. We talked about it a little bit last episode, but it is kind of nice to kind of layer your discs and, you know, you can have a few discs and different plastics and wares, but they're the same mold. Like you could have three or four Thunderbirds in your bag over time. Then you can really rely on that and kind of cycle through. And that's sometimes helpful for consistency. Yeah, for sure. I'd just say for me personally, this is a, in premium plastic, a Thunderbird. I think that the Annie is probably where I'm going to get, get the most distance on. A little Annie Flex that comes out straight, really reliable. When I was messing with these in the field, I felt like I felt like the Thunderbird was nice and reliable for that. Flexed out of the Annie, went straight for a while, still had a little bit of fade, you know, throwing like 350 um, or maybe as a 350 thrower, these were probably going a little bit less than that. I think if you've got, you know, 400 feet of power, then the Thunderbird may end up being that, you know, great disc that you can just mash on and trust without it being so dumpy and overstable that you can't really get it anywhere. Yeah, for sure. I'd I'd agree. I feel like if you have the arm speed to get 400, that's probably going to end up being something comparable to like what I talked about, the T-Bird 3 for me, but the Thunderbird would probably be the disc that would be better to go to. Yeah, and I think a lot of a lot of it depends on your game and your style, and that's just true about any disc. It's something that doesn't work well for us, uh, maybe great for you or something that works great for us may not be that great for you but we give our review just for fun and so we'll give it our rating so we'll have scores out of five david and i will rate it and then we'll uh, sum those out of ten so one is this disc just isn't that great two is it's a fine disc but there's definitely better options three is it's a good disc but it doesn't stand out four is it's not going to my bag but it's fantastic and five is it's going in my bag so david what's your rating I think I give it a 4.5. I mean, I, I kind of talked about I bag, I've definitely been bagging it for the latter part of the year. It's not a disc that I feel like I rely on heavily. It's a disc that if it was out of my bag, I think I could replace it with some other discs. But it's a disc that I have reliable shots on the courses that we have in town. So I've gotten used to throwing it a lot. And I enjoy it for the most part. But I do think that, I mean, a beat-in Firebird for me can definitely be a disc that could replace the Thunderbird. And so that's why I give it a 4.5. Yeah, probably nice to have an option out of the shell, off the shelf for the beat-in Firebird slot, though. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 4. I've bagged this for a long time. I recently have been throwing the Onyx probably for the last two years. And those start out pretty stable. But if you find one that's a little flatter, they beat into something really straight. And for me, I have got a ESP Onyx beaten into that Pro Thunderbird slot, that little bit of flip up and glide and then fade. David was actually commenting on one of the holes. It wasn't a great throw, but he was like, that, that was an Onyx? That's really straight. I was like, yeah, that's a beat in one. But you know, it's a really good disc, and I'm always tempted to put them back in my bag. And so I, I can't, I have to give it at least a four because it is a great disc. And uh, I think if I ever develop a little bit more power, maybe I'll be even more tempted. And that halo, it's just so pretty. And the coaling, they're just so pretty, you want to bag them. But I'm going to stick with the Onyx for now. And I think unless I just become super disc golf rich, I'll have to work through my Onyx collection before I put the Thunderbird back in my bag since I sold the rest of mine. <laughs> 
So that's uh, 8.5 out of 10, a solid score for a more than solid disc. And that's the majority of our podcast. But David, just for fun, we've got the Las Vegas Challenge coming up. When most people are listening to this, it should be have started or close to it. What would be your dream pro card on the MPO side? This would be guys that you could either play with or walk around and watch play. Oh, man, I think Saxon's got to be on there because, I mean, ultimately I emulate a lot of his shots and I'd like to, I'd just like to be able to walk a card with him. Also, shout out to Jeremy Coling. I definitely would love to play on a card with that guy. I think just seeing his humility and fun-loving personality, I, I would just really appreciate. But uh, I think those are two of my two of my big ones. Um, I think number three, oh, man, probably Simon Lazat. I think he's another one. I love his approach. I just love that he can laugh at the ridiculous shots that he makes, and he also laughs at himself when he has absolutely terrible shots. I, Not that, that that happens very often. <laughs> that would probably be my ideal three people to play. How so, about you? Yeah, so if I was going to go three and I was going to be the fourth, I would say i uh, got to go with James Conrad. He just seems like a very pleasant person to play with, and I'd love to watch him throw MVs. He just seems like a guy that, whatever card he's on is having fun. And I think that says a lot about him. I'm going to go Sexton as well. I just think that uh, he's got such a like strong forehand game and it's fun to watch him. And he also seems a lot of fun. And then I'm going to go Macbeth because I feel like Macbeth, he can be fun to play with when he's not in his like destroyer of worlds mode. Uh, at least it seems like people enjoy playing with him. But I'd also just love to watch him when he's locked in, just watch how he approaches the game. So I'd definitely take those three and then I would be you know, like 30 strokes back from the lowest one on the card, yeah. but that's fine. I love it. I was just watching Nate Sexton on the practice round from last season on the Las Vegas Challenge. And I think it was the it was the par four island hole. You, you, it's basically a pitch up to the island, yep. pitch yep. up to the basket. And uh, he's harassing Coling and Ulibari going into the hole, saying that the bro route is going for the hole. And he just walks up and throws this perfect spike hyzer and parks it by the hole. And uh, like that's, I just love that approach. It is that he could just, it's it's, the mockery is a lot of fun, dude. And a guy who, you know, like has a kid that he's taking care of, can't get to as many practice rounds or tournaments as he'd like to, and still shows up at Worlds and. USDGC and takes takes names is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to the episode. Thank you to Jeremy Coling for providing the pro tip and thank you to Sugar Creek Coffee providing the coffee. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast so you can catch more from us. If you want to listen to a little bit more content, hear David and I make fun of each other a little bit more, you can catch us on The Second Cup, which is our Patreon bonus podcast episodes. You can find us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash thegrinddg. And big thanks to Christopher Eplin for becoming a patron. We really appreciate the support, and we're excited to record some more podcasts. Anyway, this week, whether it's coffee or disc golf, don't forget to enjoy the grind.